your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, which is towards the end of the New Testament here. We just started this study of uh, this new book, Peter. It's a great little letter. It's super encouraging. <clears throat> and so let's, let's read this. this is, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. It's, I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. It says, this is the word of our God. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today. It is true and trustworthy. And he comes to us speaking in love. Let's, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you love us uh, in Christ, that we have been adopted forever made yours. And I pray this morning that you would continue to grow us into a people who abound in hope because Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, uh, our future is certain, sure, uh, secured. And so may we leave here rejoicing as, as a people who are ready and willing and always able to give a good reason for the hope we have in our risen Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the last year, how many people in the room have felt like you just got mugged by reality? <laughs> right? I mean, it should be 100%. <laughs> uh, it happens at every different stage of our life. You go, where in the world did that come from? What did I just live through? Why did that happen? And what Peter is doing here this morning is giving us a place to go when we are mugged by reality. Called hope. Right? He describes an incomparable hope. He's talking about the he about heaven. He's talking about the future, and he says in verse four, it's it's uh, imperishable, undefiled. It's unfading. It'll never end. Right? The more you think about it, it's it's an achingly beautiful hope. The more you think about it, I mean, it's what is heaven? It's the opposite of what life is like now. Right? That's what, all he does is just put a preposition on there that reverses it. Right? Instead of life is perishable, we're dealing with fear of death. Uh, we grieve. Uh, we've all 
defiled and been defiled in the sense of, right, selfishness just plagues every, everywhere we go. Uh, could be a literal mugging. Uh, just read the news about how humans work. Life is fading, right? We're like a flower in the field. It's beautiful for a moment, and then we fade. Time just keeps going like an ever-rolling stream. And so the question where Peter is going after us this morning and, and anybody who, who wants to listen to him is, when you are mugged by reality, what is your hope? What have you been hoping for? And I mean, that's probably a good way to summarize the last year. I mean, we, we've hoped for COVID to go away. We've hoped for relationships to be able to come back to normal, for, for hugs, to see grandkids, to go back to work in person, to get some semblance of normal. And what Peter is saying, don't settle for such a small hope, <laughs> right? We aim for something bigger as Christians because Jesus is alive, right? And so this is going to help, right? So we're, Peter's helping suffering Christians cope with reality. And what, look at Peter. What is he doing in a world that is perishable, that is defiled, that is fading? Right? What's he doing here? He's singing. He's doing what we just did. He's celebrating. He's praising God. He's exploding with a doxology. It's like an invitation to join him in the song. I mean, if you listen to it in verse 3, he's, this is a Hebrew barakah. It's, a, it's a, a Hebrew doxology. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into this future inheritance that will never go away. All right. So here's what Peter is inviting you into this morning. If you understand what happened at Easter, uh, you're brought into a place where you can't help but sing. You can't help but look forward. You can't help but praise the God who would plan this resurrection from the dead to give you a hope. Right? It leads to a place of joy, even in the presence of grief. Right? Those things, two things exist together, but that's next week. So this morning, let's ask these three questions. What is the foundation of a Christian's hope? Uh, what are the particulars of that Christian hope? And then how do you get it? Right? So hope begins with Jesus' resurrection. And that's, that's the center of, what, of Peter's argument here. If you were with us last week, Peter told us that Christians are elect exiles. They're, they're resident aliens in the world. Um, foreigners. Right? This world is not our home. We've been scattered throughout the world. But by the abundant grace of God the Father... God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Um, we're strange in the world. He's brought us to a place of faith. We're, our allegiance is to Jesus now. Right? And, and something happens the longer you're a Christian. Right? The world that was uncomfortable before because of it, its fallen nature becomes even more uncomfortable, becomes even more, becomes less and less like home. We could put it that way. Even as you're living with your neighbors and, and engaging and enjoying the good gifts God has given you, right? It doesn't, it doesn't leave you up in the clouds. Right? You're a resident alien. You've moved in even as you feel like a stranger. That was last week, right? We're, we, it's like we have dual citizenship. I think that's a good way to put it, right? We have our citizenship in heaven. We're, we're citizens of a better country, a better city, a better place, the city where all things sad come untrue. This is Jesus' land that we're a part of. This is, this is where we live now by faith. 
And yet, we live in a particular place in the fallen world, in Saratoga County, right? This is our home. We're residents. And so, as someone who's lived overseas, right? I lived overseas in, uh, for several years. One thing, when you're not at home, when you are mugged by reality, what you need most is hope, right? You want to come home. Because everything around you is telling you that this place is not my home. And then when it gets hard, that's when you long for home even more. Right? And so when Peter starts talking about this living hope, he's talking to Christians saying, this is, you, you, you're supposed to feel strange. This is, this is the future that is planned for you. Um, this is how you get through a life that is perishable defiled and unfading, right? So, I mean, it's this question. How do you know heaven's for real? That's, that's what Peter's argument's going after, right? So here's what he says. Everything Christians have in verse 3 is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Right? That, that's what starts the song. That's how you get everything that Jesus bought and paid for. A physical, bodily resurrection from the dead. Do you believe that? He is our living hope. Notice Peter keeps saying, right, he's just using the opposite of the way this world is. And all of our hopes are dying if they're in this world. Jesus is alive. Right? Do, you, do you believe that? I mean, really, that's what this last year has pushed us to, to ask that question. Is this just a pleasant fiction that we tell ourselves to, to try and be a little bit more confident? Or is this reality, right? That the same valved heart was pierced by a spear on the cross by Roman soldiers. It died, withered, and paused. It stopped, as John Updike wrote, and then it started beating again. Right? A miracle. Right? Do you believe that the same blood that bought us peace with God, Jesus' blood, um, that it's started racing through his veins again. The way the Gospel of John tells the story is that Jesus was put in the tomb, and when he walked out, what they, the only thing they found in there were Jesus' grave clothes, folded, right? Not, right? Folded. It's such an odd detail. Because it's saying he was once dead, buried, wrapped up, unable to move, and as he came back to life, right, he unwrapped his stuff and he folded the grave clothes. See, the reason Christians have joy, the reason we have hope, is because Jesus is physically alive, seated at the right hand of God the Father with the same physical body that walked out of that tomb, now with pierced, nail-pierced hands. Every command Peter's going to give in the rest of the letter as we study this, right? It's all assuming you believe this. Right? Why would you ever try and do good to your enemies to bless those who curse you if Jesus is not alive? He's our living hope. Right? If Jesus is not raised from the dead, we're trapped in this world. Sorrow will come in the night, and there will be no morning if Jesus is not alive. But because Jesus is alive, as the psalmist says, weeping may tarry through the night, but there is an eternal day, an eternal dawn that will come. 
and all things said will come untrue as Jesus will see him. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. So if you're looking at this argument, right, you're reading Peter's statement, the whole process, the whole center, it hinges on Jesus being alive. And Paul's just as blunt. We read it this morning in 1 Corinthians. He says if Christ has not been raised in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, our preaching is useless. It's useless. It's powerless, right? It's not going to help you get through reality. It's just a, a placebo. Um, it's pointless. Why talk about something that didn't happen? And we would be a people who would be, right, you should have pity on us because we based our whole lives on a lie, on fake news, right? You say, if Jesus isn't alive, your sins aren't forgiving and there is no hope for the future after death. And so, our living hope is Jesus. He's alive. This is the foundation. This is the center. Um, And if this is not true, and this is the challenge for everybody, right? If you're listening online, um, if you're wrestling with whether, where to start as you're coming to figure out who Jesus is, or you're wrestling with hope and you want to know what resources Christianity has to offer, start here. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If he didn't, then you, then you have a job in front of you. You have to come up with a historically plausible explanation for how the church exploded and took over the ancient world. You have to also come up with a historically viable reason why Peter and hundreds of people at all different times during the day, at meals, without meals, um, all said, we saw Jesus after death. Thomas put his finger in the hole in the side of, of Jesus' body. Right. You've got to come up with a reason that, that's rational. That's not a fantasy. Right. That's why N.T. Wright, the great historian, he's got an 800-page book. Right? If you really want to deep dive, this is a good place to start. Um, it's called uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God. And, and he says, you know, look, the early Christians didn't make this stuff up. Peter isn't making this stuff up. He's going to say in 2 Peter, we're not coming up with cleverly devised myths when we talked about hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus. Now, so N.T. Wright goes on, and they didn't invent the story or the meeting or the sightings. Nobody was expecting this. It blew up their expectations. They had to completely rearrange their lives because something happened that they didn't expect. No kind of conversion experience could have invented it to this extent, no matter how guilty or forgiven or free they felt. I mean, to suggest Christians made this up, as a historian and an academic, he says, you've stopped doing history and you've just started entering into a fantasy world of your own. You have to come up with a reason that's viable. Because what Peter is saying here He's going to go on in the letter. It's, it's actually, because Jesus is alive, it's going to motivate people to suffer for doing good, be willing to lose now because the future is so good. It's better for doing good if that's God's will than doing evil. And if you're reviled and hated, then bless them back. Live like Jesus did in the world. So, if you want to start what is hope, Right? Start with Jesus' resurrection. This is the center. This is the foundation. This is how you get a living hope. Right? And then second, 
if you're going to start with the resurrection, we need a living hope, right? Because Jesus, the text says, according to God's great mercy, our Father's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, right? So what is hope? Right, what is it? We use that word all the time, right? We hope that things will get better. We hope that things will change, right? We, for us, it's, it's eager longing for a future that we wish is true. Right? And the, the English word is really weak. Um, but the Greek word for hope is much more solid, if you will. It's, uh, it's about certainty about the future. Right? But we humans, we're hope-based creatures. We're constantly looking forward and living out of the present based on what we hope will happen, right? If you're aiming for a promotion, you reorganize your life to, to pour out your time and energy for your career. If you're aiming to make that special someone a permanent part of your life, right, there's your hope. <laughs> and so you're going to reorganize your time, your mind, your thoughts, your hopes, your dreams around attracting this particular person. We're hope-based creatures. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. I see it with my kids. Right? They look with eager longing forward to pretty much everything. <laughs> right? But so often, their eager longing gets mugged by reality. Right? So like over the weekend, it was our two-year-old hoping for Easter candy to eat it at breakfast. And he got mugged by mom and dad's expectations, which was, nope, not happening, buddy. Right? And so he was grieving that particular trial, which is a very real trial if you're two. Right? But this is the problem with hope. This is why we need a living hope. Because we grow up and become adults, and we do the same thing, hoping for whatever our version of candy is. And it fades, it perishes. It gets ruined by somebody or something. And so if you look at these adjectives, perishable. Life is perishable. It's marked by death and decay. It causes grief. Uh, life is defiled. It gets spoiled by what people do, by love of things too much. <laughs> right. I mean, you can, you can imagine this, can't you? It happens... Even in the best of times, um, think of just ordinary defilement in a family life. You ever look forward with great longing to family vacation? Right, you're going to rest, you got all these great plans, and then somebody gets mad. <laughs> Draws the whole family into it. Or if you're like me, your, your GPS sends you in circles, and then you're just mad and yelling at, at Steve Jobs for the making this terrible thing that never works when I want it to. Right. Yep. Those are just ordinary frustrations. Mundane misery that gets spoiled by someone's selfishness. And we haven't even gotten to the bigger ones that Peter's going to address, like, what if your boss is terrible, mean, and abusive? How do you deal with that? Right. A reality that will not get better. Right. Life gets defiled. And then life is fading. We're constantly haunted by time. Time flies. He, Peter uses the same word uh, that comes from Isaiah, that all flesh is grass and all beauty is like the flower of the field and the grass withers and the flower fades. Right. 
temporary, which is why we need a living hope. And so just imagine with me for a minute a life where you're untouched by death, unstained by evil and injustice, unimpaired by time. Time's not an issue. A life that's full of immortality, as one commentator put it, full of moral purity. It may sound too Puritan to you, but it's saying, imagine a world where people actually love each other. Imagine a world filled with beauty, because time doesn't fade it. It's getting into that that realm that C.S. Lewis wrote so eloquently in The Last Battle. At the very end, this person goes into Aslan's land. It's a picture of heaven, and and he writes down to kids' levels of saying, so begins, this is post-resurrection life, chapter one of the great story where each chapter is better than the one that came before. Because, we're back to reality, not the fiction story, the God of the Bible will never grow tired of showing his Christians more grace, more generosity, more kindness. Because you won't be impaired by time. This is, this is what Peter's describing for people who do not feel comfortable now. This is your home. This is your inheritance. It's your future. It's secure through faith in the resurrection. I mean, this is it's a fantastic future. <laughs> the more you think about it. Those words that Peter's using, uh, inheritance, it's a rich Old Testament word. Um, right, so in the Old Testament, they had an inheritance. You remember the people of Israel? They were rescued from slavery in Egypt, uh, from slavery to sin and death, rescued by the blood of the Lamb. That's part of the story. They took refuge on the Passover. Then they wandered for years in the desert, but their goal, their hope, was what? It was, I want to be in the promised land. I want to I be home. I want to be in a place where I'm going to receive homes I didn't build, fields I didn't plow, vineyards I didn't plant. I mean, the whole thing is described as a gift. But then Israel got mugged by their own reality, their own failure, their own sin. Their inheritance was perishable, defiled, it faded. They went into exile because of God's judgment. It was well earned on their part. And so Peter is saying, Christian hope is better than that hope. He's setting up this picture for suffering Christians that right now your promised land is coming, but it's not like what Israel had. Yours is secure because Jesus rose from the dead. This is your inheritance. It's a real place. We're waiting for a new heavens, a new earth where righteousness dwells. I mean, don't you want that to be true? Don't you want that preposition, this, the, the un, right? The undo, the sadness, the hardship, the pain, the injustice of this world. Right. A great reversal is coming. That, that's our living hope connected to Jesus, the one who will do that for his loved ones. Right. And it gets... More specific, because it says it's kept in heaven for you by God's power. You're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. I mean, it's saying this is secure. You're, it's guarded not by your own ability to maintain 
perfection because nobody can do that. It's, it's grounded in Jesus' perfection. And through, through God's power, it's, it's waiting in heaven to be given as a gift. All because Jesus rose from the dead. And you're saying, okay, great. I hear you. I hear this living hope. What difference does that make for me now as someone who's sick, grieving, lonely, uh, suffering all the massive pains that COVID caused? Um, what if I can't pay my bills? Why do I need to worry about this future? Well, I found this illustration helpful. Picture two people working the exact same mundane, horrible, boring factory job, right? That for six, 60 hours a week, uh, 60 hours a week, seven days a week, <laughs> I mean, you're just pouring out your day, screwing bottle tops on. Let's make it up. You're working 10 to 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Right. You're really plugging along. Right. That's the job. So picture two people, you got the same job. One person says, I'm going to pay you minimum wage. You know, you'll, you'll make $30,000 and you'll get it all at the end of the year. As long as you keep working. Don't stop. <laughs> the second person says, if you do this, right, 10 to 12 hours a day, seven days a week at the end of the year, we're going to pay you $30 million. Don't you think the promised future is going to affect how they go to work every day? <laughs> or what they're going to think about when life stinks? Right. Same job, same place, different future. Right. The one person who's promised the, you know, this great inheritance, they're singing, they got it made. The person who says, I don't know if my future is any good, is it really worth all this suffering? Right? They're ready to tap out. Right? Christianity, is that's what, that's what Peter is getting at here. Our future is described like this. You have this great, phenomenal, promised future. This glorious new world, Peter says, is ready to be revealed. It's all done. Your Father has prepared a place for you. It's just waiting to be revealed. And if you've committed by faith to Jesus, you have an armed escort, the living God himself, walking you to that reality because you are bound for the promised land. It's the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. That's power that holds on to you. Now you can see why Peter's singing. <laughs> right? This is where you go. This is where I go when I'm mugged by reality. Right? So how do you get in on it? Right? And this is... This is where Peter starts. I'm, I'm starting in the middle, and we're working our way out. And this is how we'll end. Right? We're born again into this hope. We're born again. Right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he had caused us to be born again to or into a living hope. Right? So what does that mean? How do I get this fantastic future, right? It says you have to be born again. I know it's a word in Christian circles. It can mean different things. I mean, for some people, it just means this is the time I started my whole life over. It's the day I got converted. Uh, some people use it to describe Christians who are very, very excitable about their Christian faith. <laughs> Put it that way, right? They're, they're, bo they're born again Christians. 
Right, what this is saying is you cannot have this fantastic future unless you have been born again, unless God the Father has caused you to be born. Right. Right, Peter most likely is remembering John chapter 3 when Jesus talked with a really, really good guy, Nicodemus. When Jesus himself said to Nicodemus, unless you are born again, no one can see the kingdom of God. I mean, Peter's really explicit here, isn't he? Unless something happens to us, unless your Father causes you to be born again through the hearing of the gospel, right, you can't be a Christian. Right, so think about it this way. There, there are no children, no humans in existence that ever made the decision to be born. None of my kids called a family meeting demanding their name, their existence, and their inheritance. <laughs> Everybody is just a passive recipient of their parents' will. And that's what P Peter's describing here, is you have a loving father, the father of mercy. And that word mercy is connected all the way back to Exodus 34. It's what Brandon talked about for several weeks. It's the same word used to describe God's compassion his steadfast love that never ends, right? Something that's undeserved, it's a gift. Right. Peter is trying to show these Christians who don't feel it, like they're at home, that look, this is God's will that you should long for this. You are wanted by your heavenly Father. When the world communicates that you are not wanted, you have this always true, that you have the living God who caused you to be born again by grace and grace alone through your faith. Right? I mean, this is, this is radical, gracious language that makes us Americans uncomfortable. Right? But remember who Nicodemus was? If there's anybody who's getting in on his own merits, it's Nicodemus, right? He's, he's humble, he comes to Jesus, he's moral, he's, he's a Pharisee, he's a Bible teacher, he's influential in his community, he's successful, he's a shining, sparkling example who should be able to, to keep his inheritance undefiled, except he's a sinner, like every other human. And if, if that good guy can't keep his inheritance pure, what about you? What about me? Now, for all of his accolades, Nicodemus has to start at ground zero. He must be born again to receive this hope. Right? We must all come and see ourselves as helpless as a child who is yet to be conceived in order to receive this hope. That is about as helpless as you can become. Right? See, Nicodemus... And the immoral Samaritan woman are in the same place. They're both helpless in need of mercy. Right? She's a moral failure. Everybody knows it. She's had five husbands and a current boyfriend, none of whom, none of the men in her life have been able to bear her hopes. Right? But they both are eligible to come into the kingdom if they're born again. This gives you hope for anybody, no matter who they are. So, what does mercy look like then? Right, if you want to get this and you want God's mercy and you want to be born again, where do you go? Well, look at Jesus, whose death 
shows us the depths of God's mercy. Who did Jesus die for? Those who are perishing? Those are, who are defilers and defiling? Those who are fading because of time? Humans? Sinners? Right. And the, the good news of the gospel is Jesus, this eternal, imperishable Son of God, made himself human like us, perishable. To die a brutal death on a cross, to take away the judgment we deserve for our selfishness, our sin, for our rejection of the God who gives us everything, all so that we might become imperishable through faith in Christ, to have this living hope. When you trust in Jesus, you get God as your merciful Father, which means you're his son. You're forever made God's son as Jesus has forever made, been God's son. It's permanent, a living hope. And if you're God's son, sorry ladies, that this metaphor, you're your sons, because this is legal inheritance language, right? Dudes are part of the bride of Christ, so that's another conversation. Right? But... Inheritance. If you belong to the family, if you have the family name, the inheritance is yours legally. This fantastic future is secured through Jesus' death in order to reverse our future. It's such good news. John Calvin, the, the old reformer, describes this reversal that Jesus accomplishes through his death on the cross quite beautifully. He says, look, Jesus was sold to buy us back. He was made captive in order to set us free. He was condemned in order to forgive. He was made a curse for our blessing. He was the sin offering, even though he knew no sin, to be our righteousness, our, our record of perfection. He was the one who was marred and made ugly so that we might be made fair and beautiful in him. By, by Jesus, God's anger is made gentle. Darkness is turned to light. Fear is reassured. Sadness is made merry. Hell is transfixed. Damnation is damned. Death is put to death. Mortality is made immortal. In short, Calvin writes, mercy has swallowed up all misery. And goodness, all misfortune. Because we have a living hope. <laughs> so, where are you going to go next time you're mugged by reality? It's here, to your inheritance. But it starts by looking at Jesus, who's raised from the dead. And I love the way, um, the way this works, because what it's saying is, as you are grieved, the, the grieving itself is what forces you to lean into your inheritance. Right? As you go through hard things, this is going to be next week, we'll talk more about how this works. But when bad stuff happens, if you don't look to Jesus who's alive, it, it's going to be crushing. Right? You may be grieved, but, but joy comes in the morning. Eternal spring is coming. There's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The way this works, right? if you're in the land of death, you look to the land of life. I love the way Lord of the Rings does this, obviously. I mean, I've, you've heard this enough from me in five years. But it's just a good reminder, and then we'll, we'll come to the table here, right? Sam Gamgee is on this epic journey, wandering, not at home, constantly thinking of the Shire and the good food and, and the umpteen amount of feasts that he's missing out on, right? 
But while he's in the land of death, he's overwhelmed, he's weak, he's worn out, and he's wondering if they can even go forward. There's a moment at night where it says, and Tolkien writes this, that there, peeping among the clouds, above a dark, high, up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. And it was the sheer beauty of it that smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. Hope returned to him, for it was like a shaft, clear and cold, and the thought pierced him that the shadow was only a small and passing thing because there was light and beauty forever beyond its reach. See what Tolkien's saying? Same thing as Peter. He's saying, look, there's something so beautiful waiting, and nothing can touch it because it's guarded by God's power through your faith. And that's where you go when, when you're in exile, uh, looking forward to that great day. And, and perhaps you have this question. If God's really going to renew all things, right, wipe away all tears, make everything sad come untrue, if this future is so good, why does God not bring it now? Right? Why go through all this misery? All right, and here's Peter's answer. This is from Second Peter. Do not overlook this fact that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and thousand years is one day, but the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why is the world not changed yet? He's still pursuing people to give them that gift of this forever secure inheritance, a living hope through the resurrection from the dead. He's, he's waiting for you. He's waiting for you if you have not confessed faith in the living Savior. Right? But for all who are Christians, you know what we sing? We can sing because Christ is alive. I am bound for the promised land. I am bound for the promised land. It's a hymn. I, someday when we're, we're gathered more in full, we'll sing it, but uh, it says, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and I cast a wistful eye. I'm looking forward to the future. To Canaan's fair and happy land where all my possessions lie. Because over those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the sun forever reigns and he scatters night away. No chilling wind or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore where sickness, sorrow, pain, and death are felt and feared no more. I am bound for the promised land. Christ is alive. He is risen. Let's pray. Father God, as we uh, prepare to come to the table, I, I pray you would bless the preaching of your, your good news, that you would renew and refresh and restore our faith in the risen Jesus. And as we seem to languish here at times, I pray the beauty of the gospel would then smite our heart and, and, and send us refreshed and restored, ready to be your witnesses in the world. If there are those wondering if Jesus is real, still alive, able to communicate to them, Lord, I pray your spirit would show him to them that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So we pray all these things, and we pray for your grace to bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.